couple of weeks ago. My foot was uh, still swollen and pained. And so I went to the doctor saying, are you sure it's a sprain, the worst sprain in the world? And he said, uh, let's do an MRI and said, oh no, it's cracked in two different places. So I don't feel as much of a wimp as I, as I uh, was once anticipating. So if I stumble and fall, just that's just the way it will be. That will be okay. Um, well, we're in our series of When the Silence Was Broken, and we're doing a, a study through uh, Luke chapters 1 and 2. And to understand the, the series, but specifically the text today, we've got to go back and do a little bit of background on the Old Testament. If you haven't read the Old Testament, incredible story, you should read the, the Old Testament. But really, much of it deals with the building of a nation. God comes to a, a man named Abraham, the first Jew when actually one could argue, I suppose, that he didn't have a drop of Jewish blood in him, uh, and yet he was the first Jew, so I guess he, he did. But, but God comes to him and says, this is the first time, God comes to somebody and says, I want you to worship me. I'm going to be your God. And and you are going to be my people. You're going to grow into a big family and it's going to end up being a big nation. And you're going to be mine. And I'm going to show myself to you. And I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to give you a land and lots of blessings. And I'm I'm going to reveal myself to you. And you are going to, in turn, worship me. And the whole world will see this and know that I'm around. This was the plan. Well, another promise that God made from Abraham, through Abraham, was through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, down the road... The nation grows, it gets big, it gets its own land. King David is on the throne and God comes to David and says, now remember that that promise from Abraham about all the the world being blessed through him? I was going to send a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer through Abraham. Well, you need to know, David, that he's going to have the last name as yours. He's going to be coming from your family as well. Well, now the problem with the nation, you need to know this, the Old Testament's very clear about this, that while God was being faithful to them, they were not always being faithful back. They had splurts along the way, but generally speaking, they were into immorality and paganism and idolatry and, and consumerism and injustice and all, all the stuff we face today, but doing it, you know, way back when, ancient style. Uh, but God still was faithful, and God would send prophets to them on a regular basis. Well, the nation uh, finally had a civil war, fighting amongst themselves, and God would send more prophets, and prophets were saying, straighten up, clean up, get it together, or God's going to be angry, remember the, remember the vows, remember who we are, let's, let's worship our God. They wouldn't listen. Northern kingdom got taken into captivity, deported all over the Mediterranean world, separated. Then the southern kingdom went down. Babylon took them down. Now, while this one is really important, is because the capital, Jerusalem, is in the south. The temple is in the south, which is the only place where a Jewish person could rightfully worship God. Well, that was destroyed. And the people were taken and scattered into captivity. And so at this point, they're thinking, oh, God's given up on us. But he continues. God doesn't give up on anybody. He continues to send his prophets. A remnant was allowed to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. And the very last prophet that God sent to the people was a guy by the name of Malachi, wrote in 400-425 B.C. If you were to look, the very last words of Malachi, very important, 
Because Malachi would say what many of the other prophets would say and what God said to Abraham and actually what God said to Adam and Eve and to David is that one day he's going to send his Messiah, his anointed one, the Savior, the Redeemer. He's going to send it. But, but Malachi adds something a little bit special. He says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Then in Malachi 4, some of the last words before God goes quiet for 400 years, says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Uh, then God goes quiet. 400 years, no, no encouragement, no reprimanding, no challenging, just nothing. People are going through stuff. God's people are, are getting hammered at different places. They're crying, please show up, oh God. He doesn't show up. Silence of God. Have you ever experienced the silence of God? Then we get to Luke 4 BC. You got an old man in the, in the temple. Now this, he's doing what the priests in the temple had done seven days a week. They do these rituals twice a day for seven days. Every week, 52 weeks a year. The, the ten years, decades, centuries, they've been doing this. And Zechariah is in the temple doing his temple duties. And suddenly an angel shows up. And it's important. There hasn't been an angel recording in 500 years, but the angel show, shows up. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, which probably you and I would be afraid. We're hanging out wherever and an angel shows up. But he says, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Many of the people of Israel, he will bring back to the Lord, their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, right, right out of Malachi, right? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And earlier the scripture says that even when they could have children, they couldn't have children because Elizabeth was barren. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Well, Zechariah goes home. His wife Elizabeth is then found with, with child. She hangs out in seclusion for several months. Next, next text. The angel, six months later, shows up not at an educated, sophisticated old man priest's home, but at the front door of a junior high-aged, uneducated peasant girl, Mary. Same sort of message. You're going to have a baby, except for with Mary, it's going to be without the aid of a man. And then Luke lets us know, uh, lo and behold, this Mary and this Elizabeth are related. And so Mary takes off to Elizabeth's house. Now, again, can you imagine the stories that they would tell? You've got, you got junior high, never been with a guy before, Mary, talking about her pregnancy. And you got great-grandmother type, Elizabeth, never had a baby before, talking about her pregnancy. They'd swap their pregnancy stories. It'd be kind of fascinating, I think, to listen to these stories. And so Mary is hanging out there for a while, and then she goes back home. And then after she goes back home, we pick up. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me, Luke. Chapter 1. Again, if you don't have a Bible, good thing to ask for for Christmas. Christmas is coming. They're on sale probably everywhere right now, so good time. But Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Luke 1, verse 57. It says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son 
Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. Now, in our age, in our culture, we can live relatively individualistic lives, right? We, we come home from work, we hit our garage door opener when we're still half a block away, we, we pull in, we don't get out of our car until we hit the garage door opener again, the door comes down. We go in, we do our shopping on Amazon, we order a pizza, uh, we, we, we watch television, we go to bed, maybe we have to see people at work or the doctors, whatever else, but generally speaking, we are private people. We, we don't like to let our stuff be out there. We're private individuals. This was not possible here. Matter of fact, if you were an individualistic person, you probably wouldn't survive. They did everything as a community. They, they, they rejoiced as a community. They wept as a community. They, they, they planted as a community. They harvested as a community. Politics were a community affair. Worship was a community affair. Weddings were a community affair. Funerals were a community affair. And yes, the birth of a child was a community affair. Now, especially probably this child. Because in the communities... They didn't have a lot of transients. You know, you didn't have people moving in and out off the block on a regular basis. And so you, you had, uh, typically, you were born in an area, community. You were raised in that community. You married someone else from that community. You raised your children in that community. And then you died in that community. And that's just the way the, the ball bounced. That's what was the way it was. And so, good possibility, right here, there are folk played with Zechariah when he was a little they were little boys they played together they knew these guys very well they'd done everything they laughed together they, they, these guys watched their kids and everything and when 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 Zechariah and Elizabeth got married everyone was excited oh they're going to have a great family look at the stock they're going to be great kids but month after month after month no kids came and so as a community they they grieved together and wept together and now Elizabeth, 70-something years old, having a kid. <laughs> this is kind of a celebrative thing. So they're rejoicing with her. Oh, my goodness, incredible. Because remember, Psalm 127. Is it 127, 121? One of the two. Uh, children are a heritage from the Lord. I think it's 127. Uh, blessed is the one who, whose quiver is full of them. And so, so it's a sign of blessing. And up to this point, Zechariah and Elizabeth did not have the sign of blessing. But now they do. So it's good. It's a good they're all They're all rejoicing. And it says, on the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, circumcision's community event, uh, they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Then they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. They decided to go to a higher court. Um, he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Now, I have, as you have no doubt, been to many different kinds of parties in life. And birthday parties, anniversary parties, Graduation from everything parties as a youth pastor, old man, middle school and high school and, of course, military stuff, all kinds of graduation parties and going away parties and and welcome home parties and and Halloween and bar mitzvah and communion and, and first communion confirmation, all kinds of parties. But I've never been to a circumcision party before. Have you been to a circumcision party? That's kind of a strange party, isn't it? Ah, you get them, give them a card, happy circumcision. What do you, what do you, what, what do you get them for gifts? You know, box of band-aids. I don't know what you do. I just 
It's, circumcision is a private thing. We ought not to talk about circumcision in church. Oh, what are we doing? But circumcision here was not a, a private thing. It's a community deal. And it was not done for health reasons, the way we do circumcision today. Um, back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham. Remember, we mentioned this a little bit ago. And he says, cuts a covenant with Abraham. In other words, he enters into a, a uh, official uh, deal, covenant with Abraham. Uh, now, when we have a man and a woman who want to enter into a covenant, relationship covenant, they come, we call it a wedding. Uh, they, after they say their vows and their promises, we ask for a token, a sign that, that shows that they've entered into this covenant, that they are now part, uh, that they are now one. And the sign that we've chosen in the United States anyway are wedding rings. And what the ring does is it's, it's a symbol to, to the person, to, to myself, to remind me that I belong to another, who my identity is. A wedding ring reminds us where the limits are and what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. It reminds me of promises that have been made. Well, when, when God enters into a covenant with, with his people... He, too, was seeking a sign, a sign that, that, that couldn't be lost or broken. Human relationships fail sometimes. Uh, not so with God. And so the symbol that he chose, according to Genesis 17, was circumcision, sign of the covenant. And you're going, oh, what a sign of the covenant. Man, what, what was that about? And it, makes, it does make good sense when you think it through that um, in a young Jewish boy's most private area of his life, he would know that his identity was wrapped up not where he wanted to go, what he wanted to do, what he was about. It was wrapped up in the promises of God, who he was. Very patriarchal society. So so who, who my family is, who I am, it's all about the promises of God. And one of the first promises that God made Abraham in the covenant was that, that uh, I would bless you, that you're, you're, you would grow into a great nation, that there would be many of you. So every time a child is born, that is a sign that God is keeping his end of the bargain, that he's not gone, that though we don't hear him, that though he looks like he's quiet, we can hold to the promises of God. Therefore, this, this, this community event, the circumcision thing, it was kind of like a, a renewal of, of wedding vows, with God and his people, was reminding them that how, how uh, unfaithful they've been, God's faithful. And even though there's issues and there's, there's droughts and there's sicknesses, and it, it's all about the promises of God. It brings them back. It, it's, it's not a ba- bad deal. It's, it's a good thing. And so at this, this circumcision party, the people named John, the, the the boys are named the eighth day after uh, circumcision, during the circumcision rite. So they're all kind of waiting. Right now it's just little what's-his-face. He doesn't have a name yet. So the people are looking at this guy, and, and they, they're, they're seeing that, you know what, he's got his dad's eyes. Or maybe his dad's manner. Look at him, he throws his arms just like Zechariah does when he's excited, whatever else. And so they, they say, you know what, let's name this kid Zechariah. Remember, it's a community thing. We're going to name this kid Zechariah. It was real important for these folk uh, to, you know, I, I, 
when, when, when you died, if you didn't have somebody, a child, to carry on after you, in a sense, your memory, everything was gone. But if you had a child, especially one that carried your name, uh, in a sense, you continued to live. Not in a new agey sort of way, but you continued to live th- through this life, through, through after you were gone even. It was very, very important. Now, keep in mind, there are relatives here. I don't know how many relatives have ever tried to influence the names of your children. Have you ever heard of that sort of thing? I have a, a good, good friend. Uh, when she and her husband, when their boy was born, they, they named him. They didn't tell anybody ahead of time because they didn't want all the pressure, but they named him. And then the husband's father called up and said, change the name. And uh, my friend said uh, that she told him, no, we're not going to change the name. Who do you think you are? He said, change the name. Or you're out of the will. She said, what, what, what would you like us to call that kid? <laughs> they did. They changed the name. So the relatives are there. They're putting some pressure on, on changing this guy. Of course, they're going to name him Zechariah. How many of you all have been named after a relative or have named your children after a relative? Let's see. Can we, can we my first name is Robert. My dad's name is Robert. Uh, my daughter, Lauren, her middle name is Rochelle. My, Teresa's sister's name is Rochelle. Andrew's middle name is Mark. He's named after moi. Uh, Nathan Elliott's named after Nate St. Jim Elliott. We, we do this all the, all the time, and they were there as well. We've got to name him after, after Zechariah. And so when Elizabeth steps in and she says, no, we're going to call him John, the folk were like, oh, to understand this a little bit more. Not a pure uh, analogy, of course, but it would be like a purely German family. You know, a Hildegard and Wolfgang von Wiener Schnitzel, right? <laughs> and they get together for their circumcision party, and there's Br- their, their relatives are there, you know, Bruno and Otto and, and Ingrid and Heidi, and they're all there, and they're saying, Und what are you going to name this child? And we were thinking, you know, Zechariah. And, 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 and so she says, nine, 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 nine. And we are going to name him Juan. <laughs> what? What? Nothing against the name Juan. It's a nice name. I'm sure it's a nice name. But it just didn't fit the context. There's no one in our family named Juan. What are you talking about? We can't pronounce that. What are you saying? And so, let's, and so these, these folk, you think they would say, listen, you want to have a baby at 70 years old, name him whatever you want to name him. You've earned it, man. But they don't do that, do they? They push back a little bit. They, they decide we're going to take it to the Supreme Court. Let's go see what Zechariah says. And so, so they made signs to his father which infers that not only was Zechariah mute, but he was deaf, which if this was the case, he couldn't hear that Elizabeth just said, no, his name is John. They wanted to see what he would name him. He asked for a writing tablet. Now, if, if you were Zechariah, I think about this sometimes. If I was Zechariah, for these nine months when Elizabeth is, is pregnant and I'm watching the baby develop in her womb, I'll tell you what I'd be doing. Now, I wouldn't have access, not everybody had a Bible, but he was a priest, so he knew the word fairly well. I would be going over every passage I could think of that even spoke about my son. I would want to know what God says about him, what his lot in life is, where he's going to be going, and what he's going to be doing. I would talk to all my priest friends, tell me, what do you think, what passages do you know of in Scripture that talk about the, the forerunner? I would sneak off to the, the temple and I would grab the scrolls and I would check it out because I would want to know what the scripture said about my son. 
And if I did this, one thing I would find out is that there is no prophecy that says he has to be named John. You know, well, why did what's with the name him John thing? I mean, that's just that's irrelevant. I bet that's really not from God. I bet that angel just ticked off at me, just, just made a set. He didn't want me to name him. I bet you that's what the deal was. I bet that's really not part of God's plan. It doesn't really matter what we call him. There's going to be a forerunner anyway. And whether he's, he's John the Baptist or Zechariah the Baptist Jr., it doesn't really matter. And so, well, I'll tell you what. We'll, we'll name him Zechariah John. That will be his middle name, John. Or maybe that will be his nickname, John. We're going to call him, see if we can name him Zechariah. Then, then God wins. He's going to have a forerunner. And it doesn't hurt me either. I'm okay. But Zechariah knows from experience, uh, from experience, that uh, when he disobeys God, his faith dwindles. There's a huge cost to be paid when you disobey. And there's just a, a major principle here in Scripture. The principle is this. And we see this all over the pages of Scripture. When I obey, my faith grows. When I disobey, my faith slows. Can you say that with me? When I obey, my faith grows. When I disobey, my faith slows. You know, I would pray when I was a kid, still do, still do, three things I really want, I'm asking God God for. Um, I want to be... A man of the word, I'm not saying that I'm there, but I want to be there where I know it and live it. I want to be a man of prayer who doesn't waste time praying like the Pharisees wasted time praying, but every time I pray, I really do connect with God. Uh, And I want to be a man of faith. But how does God build faith in you? What does he do? You know, we think sometimes we pray for faith, make me a man of faith. Well, be careful. When what does God do? Does he like when you're sleeping, you know, open up and just kind of pour faith inside you? How does God build your faith? Well, several ways, but one key way he builds faith is obedience. When we obey, when he brings you to that crossroad and you obey, you know what happens? Your faith grows. But when you come to that crossroad, if you decide to not, or if you just... Uh, think you're going to be neutral. There's really no neutrality. Your faith slows. You are going backwards. We we see this, again, all over Scripture. Daniel chapter 1. You know the story. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them as, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 17 years old, most probably. They are brought into captivity. They're brought out of Jerusalem. Teenage kids. They're they're thrown into Babylon. Uh, now, these are the lucky ones, though, because they're in the palace. They're getting groomed to be the king's wise men. They look out the window, and there are all the other people that came with them, living in squalor. They're the, the slaves. They have barely enough to eat, all those kind of things. But they're in the palace. And, and all of a sudden, the king unveils the table that they're supposed to eat at. It's time. Come on, it's time to eat. And they go to eat. But eating was... Here, in this instance, anyway, it was a worship event. And they looked at all the food, which was all dedicated to the king's idols. And this was truly a a worship event. They were to be, as they would partake of this, they were showing that these were their gods now. And Daniel puts the brakes on and says, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on, can't do that. Can't go down that road. 
And now I can imagine that one of his friends kind of pulls him aside and says, excuse me, Butler, hang on. Daniel, Daniel, look out the window, buddy. You know, you want to be out there. That's where you can be. Matter of fact, you, you, you schmuck this up and the rest of us may be out there with you. Therefore, we're, we're resting on you, buddy. So don't ruin this for us. Got it? Uh, and, uh, listen, we had our choice. We'd still be in Jerusalem. We didn't pick this for ourselves. Come on, this, look at the influence we could have if we were still in this palace. Don't get us kicked out of this place, man. We're, we, we're in Babylon. We do as the Babylonians. We gotta play by the king's rules. Just eat the food, you know? Good way to rationalize. But Daniel says, can't go down that road. Can't do it. Now, maybe, this is real speculative here, but a few chapters, it can be many years actually, uh, Daniel's going to need some pretty strong faith because he's going to be facing the death sentence if he, if he, if he doesn't obey the king, if, if he doesn't disobey God, he's going into the lion's den. He's going to need a number nine faith. And maybe at this point he's only got number seven faith. But when he obeys here, when he sees God come through here, it builds. When we obey, our faith grows. And this, God knows what, what we're facing in the future. We don't know that. And God knows the condition our faith has to be when we hit that crossroads. And so today, when we take that, 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 that issue that we're being faced with and we disobey with it, our, our faith weakens. And so when that time comes and our, we need a strong faith to pass it, we're going to fail. This is how God builds our, our, our faith, strengthens us. And, and if, let me ask you, what, what is key areas that it's easy for you to disobey, negotiate with God? I'll rationalize. Maybe it's an issue of friends. Um, you know, the relatives and friends were at Zechariah's house. Maybe they're friends in school or in the workplace or neighborhood or extended family where it just means so much to you, maybe too much to you, that they not think you strange. They, they have to accept you in, in, in some minor superficial way, but they need to accept you for whatever dysfunctional reason. And please know we are all dysfunctional. That's not the question. But for whatever reason, you have to have that. And so what happens when, when God says, you need to obey me here, what, what we do? is we pop on the, the salesman's hat. We all, I've got a big one. We all have a salesman's hat. And we pride ourselves of being people of discernment. No one can dupe us. But we can talk ourselves into anything, can't we? Oh, man. And so we start rationalizing why this thing that we know we shouldn't do and God doesn't want us to do, why really it's okay. It's the proper thing to do, actually. And so we, well, if I offend these people, well, then they're never going to hear the gospel. Can't have that happen. So really, I've just got to sacrifice and do this little thing so they one day might hear the gospel. We've talked ourselves into this. Maybe it's an area of finances or work or position or security where you know, you know, I, the boss told me I've got to tell them it's in the mail. And maybe it really is. I, 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 maybe, maybe I don't, but I gotta obey my boss. I mean, it's, you know, authority and stuff. I gotta, gotta do that. Or, or perhaps it's an issue of uh, changing the numbers on the tax form. Eh, none of us ever attempted there, right? But it's, man, the government gets so much anyway, and I don't like what they're doing with the stuff I'm giving them, and, and plus, you know, I'm not into war, and, and this is, it's a moral issue, you know? And so we talk ourselves into reasons why maybe it's an issue of just progress. You know, you just want to get stuff done. 
And if you got to jump those goofy hoops that God has set up again, and I know what it says, and I'm really not opposed to it, but it's just going to delay me, and it's going to keep me from getting done what needs to get done. And so we rationalize. We, we talk it through as to why we don't need to go down that road. But if we continue with the text, this, this, is, very, this is fascinating because there's a corollary of the text. Certainly, the principle, or corollary of the principle. When I obey, my faith grows. When I disobey, my faith slows. But look at the rest of the text. It says, immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Corollary to this principle is when I obey, other people's faith grows. When I disobey, other people's faith slows. Um, in uh, freshman year marching band, had the cool black hats and we had black and gold color. It was, it was cool outfits. And our band was okay. Uh, one of the songs that we got to, to march to was uh, Superstar. It's from the rock opera uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. And in all honesty, it was a really cool piece to march to. I mean, it was just a great beat. It had a great trumpet part. I just, it was a great song. Problem was, in Sunday school, not too much before this was handed out, our Sunday school teacher read this interview. I don't, I've never been able to validate this, so just take it as it is. But an interview with a guy who wrote Superstar, supposedly, and it said that this guy said Jesus was a fool. He was just a man. Well, this is really shaking me up a little bit because here I am looking at this song that sounds really cool and everyone else is playing and I'm supposed to play, but I know the guy who wrote this thing said Jesus was a fool and so I'm going... Go to the director, and I say, yeah, I can't play this thing. We argue back and forth for a while, and it's religious reasons. And he says, okay, fine, I'll let it go. So every time we practice, I would practice. I would have my horn down in my, my lap. And every time we'd be out practicing, uh, marching, I would just keep my, my, my trumpet in front of me. Well, we're, we're in a parade. It's absolutely true. We're, we're, you have to know my director, but we're in a parade, and we're in block formation, and we're marching, you know, and I forget we just played, you know, the Flintstones theme song or something. So we're, we're, but we're marching, and, and the Tim Toms are going, you know, it's going great. And uh, then the drum major gives us the whistles. You flip the thing over, and oh, it's Superstars, the next song. And so everyone pulls up their horns, and it's just a, a really cool piece. You know, you don't know the song, I'm not going to teach it to you right now. Uh, but anyway, so I'm, I'm, but I'm keeping my horn down. And so they're, they're playing and we're marching and, and everything else. And I just got my horn right in the middle of the, the whole thing. I'm marching. And my director, you know, kid, people lined the sides. Of, What's a parade? He comes running into block formation. He stands right in front of me and he starts marching backwards. And he's grabbing the bell of my horn. Get your horn up, Harris. Get your horn up. I'm going, no, I told you I can't get my horn. Get your horn up. I'm pulling my head on. I can't get up. The guy behind me on the Tim Toms is, is screaming, Harris, keep your bleeping horn down. And I'm going, keep my horn down. I don't know. Get it up. Get it up. And this guy next to me who's playing the trumpet, you know, he's, he's, Harris, get your bleeping horn up. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And then the guy in front of me, uh, Tony, I'll call him, long, beautiful, blonde hair, Tony, uh, <laughs> Uh, a loner guy, smart kid, uh, uh, druggy guy, 
But he's playing his bone. And he hears, of course, what's going on. And so he turns around while he's marching. He's swearing and screaming, Harris, keep your bleeping horn down. And <laughs> what's going on? So I figure if God says keep it down and Tony says keep it down, I'm keeping this baby down. Uh, we get done with the parade. I just want to get back to the school. We're in the bus. I just get back and hurry up and get out of there before I get mugged by the, by the band. We've got this swear fight going on in the middle of the parade. Uh, I'm getting ready to leave. And Tony comes up behind me. He says, hey, Harris. You know what in the bleep was that about? Uh, he really didn't care if I kept my horn down or not. He was just kind of anti-establishment. If it was fighting against the director, it was worth the war for him. So I, I told him, I said, I know he's a senior, and I'm a freshman. I say, the guy who wrote that song said Jesus was a fool. He was only a man, and I don't think he was. And I was able to share who I thought Jesus was and the gospel and my testimony. And I got done. It wasn't a 30-minute sermon or anything, but I got done. And, and Tony's looking down, and he looks up at me, and he says, that's cool. He turns around and, and, and walks away. I don't have a clue what happened with, with Tony's faith, but I know that when we obey, other people's faith grows. I mentioned this to you before. Gerald and Earl, myself, were eight years old, walking down the, the alley. Earl's swearing like a banshee. I'm swearing like a banshee. But Gerald is being incredibly quiet. And so we're, come on, Gerald, swear like a banshee, like we are, you know. And, and, and he's looking down again, quiet. And he says, the other night at Awana, I entrusted my life or gave my life to Jesus. And I don't think he wants me talking like that. You know, if I was to list for you today, this was 42 years ago, top five things that has changed my life, that would be one of them. An eight-year-old kid deciding that he was going to obey against the flow, against the stream. He was going to obey. Because when we obey, other people's faith grows. And likewise, when God brings us to that crossroad and we disobey those who are watching us, their faith will slow down as well in many cases. So let me ask you, right now are you at a crossroads this morning? Is there something you know God's calling you to do? And you're going to get to it. You know, it's on the to-do list. And you're thinking about it and you're praying about it and you're trying to figure out how to make it and you're waiting for the right time because, you know, timing is everything. And, and it's on that to-do list and it's been on that to-do list for a while. Uh, but you know as well as I do, we'll probably never make it to the done list. And it's going to go through weeks and months, and maybe it's already gone through years. And before we know it, our life will be done, and we'll be saying, you know what, I was going to do that thing. We lived in disobedience. Maybe for you, you're at the crossroads, and you know you should confront somebody. There's somebody that you don't want to. Oh, my goodness, you don't want to. And you don't want to be obnoxious about it, but you know you probably need to sit them down and say, listen, I'm not perfect. You know that as well as anybody. But there's some stuff going on in your life that just makes me nervous. You need to confront somebody. And that's still on the to-do list. Well, you know what? Tomorrow we need to get down the done list, right? Maybe it's uh, an issue of forgiving somebody. Something happened a long, long time ago, or maybe just recently. Wound's still raw, and the thought is, you know what, it's just not right time. I'll get there, but it's just not the right time. And, I'm, and please hear me, I'm not saying forgiveness is easy, and I'm not saying it, it's not deep, but it starts with, anyway, a decision 
to, to entrust that person, that issue that I think I'm going to let off the hook, to entrust them to God's justice and, and, and God's resources for dealing with it and to recognize I don't have to be the judge on this one. I'm, I'm entrusting that to God. I, I forgive the person. Maybe you're, you're at that crossroads. Maybe you're at a place where you know your thinking has just gone beyond the boundaries of what is appropriate. Not real far, but a little bit. And God saying, you know, whatever's true and honest and right and pure and lovely and of good report, anything that I can praise you about, think on those things. It's an obedience issue. You need to pull back because when you disobey, your faith is eroded. It slows down. Maybe it's a, I don't know, a hobby issue. A good hobby. It's not, you know, we're collecting bongs or something. It's a good hobby. Uh, but, but, but still, you know the amount of time and the amount of money and the amount of constant mental energy, it's, it's, it's just beyond what ought to be. Again, I'm not trying to, to uh, play Holy Spirit. If God has spoken, you know it. Uh, maybe it's a financial issue or a health issue, whatever issue. But what is it for you? Are you at that crossroads? And maybe you've been there such a long time, you've just forgotten that you're there. There's just been that thing that you've neglected and ignored and you, for the longest time, and you know God is asking you to do something. And you just need to, to get it on the to-done list and off of the, off the to-do list. What is it for you? The good thing about this, of course, right? is we are at the crossroads, if we obey, our faith grows. you got the opportunity to take your faith from a 6 to a 7 or from a 7 to an 8 or whatever else. But keep in mind, you also have that opportunity to take your faith from a 6 to a 5 or erode it, erode it further. Because when we obey, our faith grows. When we disobey, it slows 